Let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Kings chapter 4. We were here last week. We looked at the providential supply of God in 2 Kings chapter 4. We have seven verses left in this chapter, and then we'll go on to the the first story in our narrative in in chapter 5. There are three more miracles that show us that uh, the, the supply of God's multiplus provisions uh, to those who are in need. Uh, we saw that uh, the provision of oil in the first part of chapter 4, the sustaining of life for the widow and for her two sons, and then the, the Shunammite couple, uh, we saw the giving of life uh, where they were beyond child rearing but they had a son, and then the restoring of life as that child was brought back from the dead. Uh, the title of the message this morning is God's Protection provision, and cleansing. And so in the three miracles that we'll look at today in the life of Elisha, we see the power of God's protection. That is, we'll look at a stew that was made safe. And then the abundance of God's provision, bread that was brought to the school of the prophets that was made sufficient. And then the completeness of God's cleansing, the story of Naaman, the leper, as his leprosy is cleansed. So first of all, the power of God's protection. The prophets, uh, we might call this the prophet's potluck dinner. Uh, we who are Baptists know what potlucks are, don't we? We, we like to eat. And a potluck means that you bring everything to the table that you have in the refrigerator or that you have on hand. It comes from the practice of throwing leftovers in the pot. And if, if you're lucky, it will taste good. And uh, the prophets found out here that the stew not only tasted terrible, but it was deadly if they ate it. The entire narrative takes place in the first four verses, or verses uh, 38 through 41, four verses in 2 Kings chapter 4. So let's start reading in verse 38. And Elisha came again to Gilgal, and there was a dearth in the land. And the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, and he said unto his servant, Set on the great pot and seethe pottage for the sons of the prophets. And one went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered thereof wild gourds, his lap full, and came and shred them into the pot of pottage, for they knew them not. So they poured out for the men to eat. And it came to pass as they were eating of the pottage that they cried out and said, O thou man of God, there is death in the pot. They could not eat thereof. But he said, Then bring meal. And he cast it into the pot, and he said, Pour out for the people that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. Here these prophets were getting hungry. Elisha came to Gilgal. That was one of the locations where the schools or the school of the prophets met. They met in Gilgal, Bethel, and Jericho. And notice there was a famine in the land. There was a dearth. That might be the same famine that's referred to in 2 Kings chapter 8. That famine lasted for seven years. You'll read about it in 2 Kings 8.1. Now the prospect of, of dying of starvation is, is pretty difficult for us to get our heads around. Especially after a week that we've had of eating just about everything that we shouldn't have eaten and we could probably survive for several weeks now on just the leftovers or what we have gained. But let's put ourselves back into this agrarian culture and society. 
We're reading about a, a group of people who, who grew their own food. There was no refrigeration. And conditions during a drought or a famine were critical. There's a limited supply of grain. I, I think of, of Jacob when he sent his sons down into Egypt because of the famine that was there. And all they brought back were sacks of grain, each one having a sack. So it wasn't like ships that were sailing and railroad cars that were taking these goods to other parts of the world. This is a very serious thing. And it says that they were sitting before him, verse 38. Can you imagine Elisha as, as he's looking into these gaunt faces and you know, the elephant in the room, nobody is saying, hey, we're starving. You know, lessons on, on prophecy are, are not getting through because we're just too hungry. Elisha told his servant, it was either Gehazi or another servant, to set on the great pot. That is to bring to a boil, to seethe the pottage. The prophets themselves were, were called upon to go out and gather edible plants to put in this stew. I don't know if you remember the, the parable, I think it's an Aesop's fable, of stone soup. I always used to love that story because the, the man, the visitor, started with a stone and he said, you know, it tastes a lot better if it had celery in it. And so they've added that. And they kept adding things and pretty soon he, he removed the stone and he could use it again. But here, they went out to find out everything that they could put in and one person brought back gourds from a wild vine. And it says that he brought a lap full. Now, as soon as you stand up, you don't have a lap anymore, right? So I, I was interested in what that word lap meant. And it's actually uh, the, the, the fold in his outer cloak. It would be like an apron, uh, loosely strapped over the one shoulder and fastened uh, to the, under the right arm. And, and so he, he piled all these gourds into his coat and he carried it. And as he was coming back, he probably thought, you know, how fortunate of me to find something to bring to this meal. Uh, we all love to contribute something, don't we? The last words in verse 39 said, say, for they knew them not. It means they didn't know that these, these gourds were on the inedible list. Stay away from these. They're toxic. And if you don't know what you're looking for, there are a lot of poisonous plants and flowers. They might have looked okay to him to eat. There's a wild vine that grows in Israel that has fruit on it the size and color of an orange. There's also a plant known as colocynth. It produces a fruit that looks like a small watermelon, but it's bitter to the taste and it contains chemicals that can be deadly. I'm told that in small amounts it can be used for uh, infections of gallbladder or other ailments, but it's a very small portion that's used for that. But the result here is the stew now contains this poison. Verse 40, and it came to pass as they were eating, they cried out, there is death in the pot. When I read that, I, I realize I put myself there around that pot, and, and it's too late now. It's as they're eating it. I can imagine the prophet saying, you know, this doesn't taste right. Have you ever done that? It, smell this milk. Is this, can, we, can we do this? It's too late now. They've already, they've already eaten it. And, and, and there's a sense here, there's a terrible feeling if... They didn't know what it was when they brought it, so you could say everyone was culpable. They should have recognized it as being bad. But if you knew that that was your gourd that you brought to that pot, wouldn't it make you feel terrible? 
Imagine bringing something to a potluck at church and everybody gets sick. And they said, I had that apple pie. That was, is that, did you have that? So there's a, a, a fair, terrible feeling there. There's also the sense of waste. You think about all the good ingredients that went into that stew as well. And all the time that they took to go out and forage for these, for these plants was all, all wasted. To whom did they cry out, there's death in the pot? To the man of God. Elisha, what should we do? And there are times in our lives where our, we, we just say, I'm, I'm going to get sick. I don't know what I've done. And we turn to God, what shall I do now? So turning to, to God, to the, his man, Elisha. And why did they do that? They knew that God was able to protect them from anything that would harm them. And we need to know that truth today as well. God is able to protect you from anything that will harm you. Elisha was the one who called for the meal or flour. Elisha was the one who said to cast, who cast it into the pot. And Elisha was the one who said to, to pour out so that the people can eat. Would you have been in the front of the line? <laughs> How big is your faith? But notice Elisha did all this, but God was the one who removed the poison and made the stew safe to eat. We see the miracle revealed in the phrase at the end of verse 41, and there was no harm in the pot. Just as Elijah had added salt to that fountainhead of the, of the water, and it was purified in 2 Kings 2, 19 and 20, so here the meal that was added didn't produce some kind of chemical reaction that made it safe to eat. This was a miracle of God. God was the one who made this stew safe to eat. Some commentaries make the application about Baal worship that was going on in Israel at this time. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says, In Elisha's day, a spiritual famine had resulted from the people's turning from God and his law. The people were hungry spiritually. In an effort to satisfy their need, they had imbibed a false religion called Baalism. It looked harmless enough, but proved disgusting and deadly. And God's prophets helped counteract the deadly effects of Baalism in Israel. What can we take away from, from this miracle today? What, what application can we make in our own lives? Well, the obvious point in the miracle is what we've already said, that God is able to protect you from all harm. He cares for you. He's omnipotent. But I think we can also learn something about sometimes you seem to have done your best. You know, I went out gathering these gourds. I had, I had good intentions. I, I wanted, I wanted to, to do this for the good of everyone that was there. And, and you do something like that in your life, and it doesn't turn out like you planned. And, and you look at the, the mess that you've made of everything with your own hands. And I believe that we can sometimes bring these things to God. We can always bring these things to God and say, can you change it? He did for these prophets. Uh, if this is our attitude, that our works are futile, you know, you know, I went out, I did this, it turned out bad. Everything I touched, you know, just turns to fertilizer. No, nothing I can do is good. We might say, I'm never going to do anything for the Lord again. 
And you might have tried something, a Sunday school class, or maybe, maybe doing a special in church, and it just didn't turn out the way you thought it would, and you say, I'm done. Don't give up. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Don't quit just because you did it once and it didn't turn out. We're to be obedient in our work. We're to be diligent in our service, but we must rely on the power of God to do the work. There's a great rule of thumb. If things go wrong, I'm the one who gets the blame. But if anything turns out good, God gets the credit. That's a great rule of thumb in your own life, too. Another truth here, God is able to change things for his glory. This account is not just about protection. It's about changing the, the mess that we made of our lives into something that's good, into something that's even beneficial to others. That's the point Paul makes in Romans 8.28. We know that all things work together for good, to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. That's the power of God's protection. Let's look secondly at the abundance of God's provision. Another story, God's provisions are always enough. Here we just have three verses, 42 through 44. And we, we read about uh, uh, this man of God who came. There was a man who came from Baal Shalisha and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, and full ears of corn in the husk thereof. And he said, Give unto the people that they may eat. And his servitor said, What should I set before this before uh, what what should I set this before an hundred men? And he said again, Give the people that they may eat. For thus saith the Lord, they shall eat and shall leave thereof. So he set it before them, and they did eat and left thereof according to the word of the Lord. Notice first that God used someone else to bring this gift, to meet the needs of the prophets. It's always wonderful to, to see how God uses people that you would just never expect. Just someone shows up at the door. Could, could you use this? Um, he used a man from Baal Shalisha. He brought 20 loaves of bread made from the first fruits. This would have been the barley crop. First fruits were those uh, first gleanings that were gathered in a harvest. And the barley was the first crop to be gleaned. The, the planting for barley was staggered over four months, but the first crops would have been gathered in March, the time of Passover. It's a very sacrificial gift that this man brought. Uh, probably the first crop that was harvested after this seven years of famine. One commentator writes, the man's offering to the prophet speaks loudly of his giving to God from the first and best that he had, even in adverse conditions. When things are tight, don't ever think, you know, I better hold back to make sure that I have enough for myself. Here's a sacrificial gift from this man. Don't ever think, well, you know, it's not that much. It's not going to be enough. And we find that out by what the, the servant said, the servitor. You know, how, how are we going to feed everybody with this? Don't think, well, this is, this is too small to give. If God lays something on your heart, do it. It might be the missions giving tree. You know, it's not going to be as much as someone else could give. If God lays it on your heart, do it. Give him the first fruits, knowing that he'll take care of you. 
He also brought fresh ears of corn. The word corn here could be grain, probably more barley. And, uh, and it says in the husk, that is in the head. Uh, also, the husk could be a sack that this man brought things with. And it's argued that he brought the bread and these, uh, these the barley husks uh, in the same bag. So it was all just carried in one bag. The gift wasn't enough for a hundred men. The statements here show us the insufficiency of the gift that's divided a hundred ways. hundred men fed with 20 loaves of barley. Now remember, those loaves are not the loaves that you look for in the grocery store today. They would have been just the size of a dinner roll, maybe something flat, maybe like a, a thick pancake, 8 to 10 inches in, in diameter, just a small thing. And so you're going to get a fifth of that if they're going to divide it into a hundred people, a fifth of that. Again, one man carried it in his sack. And then we have that, that servant asking the question in verse 43, how can this be set before 100 men? Obviously, this is not enough. What a great lesson for us. Don't ever look at what God provides in your life as not enough. Insufficient. Whatever he gives you by his grace is exactly what you need. And it's always sufficient. God is able to increase the gift and meet the need. Notice in verse 43, God spoke. They will eat and have leftover. Uh, my mom used to call them, we're having felt tonight. Have you ever used that? It's leftover spelled backwards. But, <laughs> but here, the, the idea is, it sounds a lot fancier than leftovers. But here the idea is, is there's going to be leftover. You're going to eat and it'll be enough. And God worked, verse 44, so they sat, ate, and had leftover. And then God reminded in verse 44, according to the word of the Lord, just like he said he would. Philippians 4.19, how many times have you gone to that verse? My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And you say, he did it. He did it again, just like he said he would. Find a promise in God's word, claim it, and give glory to the Lord. You know, 800 years later, there were two occasions that we were all familiar with when Jesus fed the multitudes. The boy brought five loaves and two fish with him. Jesus multiplied them and fed a crowd that included 5,000 men. And after the miracle, you remember how many baskets of leftovers there were? Twelve baskets. He collected them. The boy couldn't have carried the leftovers home. Then again, with seven loaves and a few fish, Jesus fed 4,000. On that occasion, there were seven baskets of food left over. In each of these miracles, the one in 2 Kings 4 included, there was food left over. God's provisions are always sufficient to meet your needs and more. That's true not only in the physical realm. It's also true in, in the spiritual realm as well. There's a wonderful verse, Romans 5.20, where Paul makes up a word because there just wasn't a word to describe it. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Grace superabounded. Isn't it wonderful? God's provisions in your spiritual life are always more than enough as well. I was reading about Hudson Taylor, missionary to China. 
He had a journal, and one of the entries in the journal, he wrote, Our Heavenly Father is a very experienced one. He knows very well that his children wake up with a good appetite every morning. He sustained three million Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. We do not expect he will send three million missionaries to China, but if he did, he would have ample means to sustain them all. Depend on it. God's work, God done God's way, will never lack God's supply. What a wonderful lesson in the sufficiency, the abundance of God's provision. Now we come to chapter 5, and we'll go quickly through verses 1 through 15, the completeness of God's cleansing. Here a leper is cleansed. Verse 1 says, Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. An important man had a great need. Naaman was the captain of the armies of the king of Syria. That would have been Ben-Hadad II. Naaman was a great man with his master, the king. He was honorable because of past victories. And don't you find it interesting that the text says God gave him those victories? God, recognized or not, is the one who gives victories, even to the Syrians, enemies of Israel at times. Fourth, he was a mighty man of valor. And then we get to those last words in verse 1. And none of those accomplishments and achievements and status matter anymore because Naaman was a leper. In verses 2 through 8, let me summarize. We're, there's a little servant girl there who told her, her master, the lady, to tell Naaman about a prophet in Samaria who could help. The slave girl knew that God had the power to heal. She knew that God's prophet, Elisha, could help. Now, remember, she's in slavery. She's been taken captive. She's waiting on Naaman's wife. And when she had an opportunity, she spoke up. Here's a willingness of a slave girl, captured by the Syrians, to share good news with the ones who captured her, who wronged her. Do you ever complain about your circumstances? Instead of asking God to use you where he puts you, it's easy to do. But we ought to be more like this servant girl. Look at the king of Syria here, Ben-Hadad II. He sent a letter to the king of Israel. This would have been Joram. And Joram tore his clothes in anguish. Surely this king is trying to make war with me. How can I heal leprosy? And Elisha heard about the problem and said in verse 8, let him come now to me. When I look at the, the king of Israel and then consider this slave girl that's over there in Syria, I see a great contrast in faith, don't you? She believed God could heal Naaman. Joram, the king of Israel, didn't. Naaman had his pride tested, and we're familiar with the story, but let's pick it up in verses 9 and 10. So Naaman came with his horse and with his chariot, our horses, and with his chariot, and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. He arrives with, with all of these horses, with his chariot, and Elisha doesn't even come out of his house. He sent his servant out. 
The servant told Naaman to, to wash seven times in the Jordan River and he'd be cleansed of his leprosy. He says, your flesh will come unto you, or will come again unto you. The word come again there is, is the Hebrew word to turn. It'll turn back to its original state. Naaman is angry, verses 11 and 12. But Naaman was wroth and went away and said, Behold, I thought he'll surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. He had a different view of how God should work. I thought Elisha would come out. I thought he'd put his hand on the leprosy and it would be cleansed. When we expect God to do what we think he should do, have we not become idolaters? Because we're creating a God in our minds that we think he should be. And when he's not, that's idolatry. Naaman didn't want to wash in the muddy river. No one had ever been cleansed of leprosy before by washing in the Jordan. His own country had nicer rivers. And so he got angry. Verse 11 says he was wroth. Verse 12 says he went away in a rage. Don't ever let pride keep you from obeying what God wants you to do. How many people walk away from God because they're angry? He doesn't do things that they thought he should do. Why did this happen in my life? And they get angry at God. It happens all the time, doesn't it? Don't let pride keep you from obeying what God tells you to do. Naaman was persuaded, finally, to obey, verses 13 and 14. And his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father... If the prophet had bid thee do something, some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather then, when he saith to thee, wash and be clean? Then he went down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. What a wonderful miracle. I notice in this, these two verses that his servants are the ones who encouraged him to do what he should do. Servants are more prone to humility. They're used to taking orders, to doing things that they're told to do. As I think about them, I think about our influence on other people. You might have something that you could say to someone that would change the course of their life encouraging them to be obedient to what God says. The servant girl spoke up. The servants of Naaman reasoned with him to obey. We need to influence others for good. He obeyed and his flesh was restored. It came again. Uh, if there was missing skin because of the nature of leprosy, that was restored as well. It reappeared. And not only was it restored, it was restored to the condition of a, the skin of a little child. God's cleansing work is always a complete work. And Naaman gave testimony that the God of Israel was the only true God. Verse 15. And he returned to the man of God, and he and all his company, and came and stood before him and said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. 
As the cry of Mount Carmel arose when the fire of God fell on the sacrifice of Elijah, the Lord, he is the God, the Lord, he is the God, so Naaman concludes, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. As I said at the outset of Elijah and Elisha in our study, these miracles are designed to turn people to believing who God is. John 20, 31. These things are written that you may believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that men would know that he is God. What a wonderful passage of scripture that we've looked at today. When God protects, he does so that he teaches us a lesson that he can take the disastrous efforts and failures that we have and he can change them to something that's good, to something that's beneficial. When God provides, he does so with an abundance that overwhelms us. How did that stretch that far that there would be more left over? God's marvelous grace, whether it's physical need whether it's a spiritual need that you have in your life, the Lord is able to, to abundantly provide all that you need. And when God cleanses, he does so completely. If you're here today and you say, my, my life is just destroyed. I'm, I'm responsible for my sin. I stand before God as a wicked sinner, ungodly. He can save you. Obey him. He says, come to Christ and be cleansed. And when you come, your, your soul, your heart, will be as pure as God can make it, forgiven of sin. You can have a home in heaven if you trust Christ as your Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your protection. We thank you for your, your abundant provisions. We thank you for your complete cleansing. And I pray that we would go from this place remembering who you are, what you've done in our lives, what you will continue to do to prove who you are. And may we, with that knowledge and understanding of your greatness and your goodness and your love and your work, turn to a world that doesn't know you and show them what you've done in our own lives so that they would come to the conclusion, there is a God and he can save me from my sin. Use our lives as testimonies to a world that needs to see what Christ can do. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.